Citra had never been sure what path her life would take. She assumed she would go to college, get a degree in something pleasant, then settle into a comfortable job, meet a comfortable guy, and have a nice, unremarkable life. It's not that she longed for such an existence, but it was expected. Not just of her, but of everyone. With nothing to really aspire to, life had become about maintenance. Eternal maintenance. Could she possibly find a greater purpose in the gleaning of human life? The answer was still a resolute no. That's a quote from Scythe by Neil Schusterman. This is Why a Book Chat, and I'm your host, Leah Stuhler. everybody and welcome to YA Book Chat. I am so excited that you are here for yet another episode. Today I am starting a brand new book series that I have not covered yet. It is the Ark of a Scythe Trilogy by Neil Schusterman and today we are covering the very first book in the series called Scythe. And I am very excited to have a special guest with me. And her name is Victoria. She is an emerging young adult author herself. Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hi, Leah. Thank you so much for having me on today. Of course. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Well, like you said, I am an emerging young adult novelist, which means that I read a lot of YA books, uh, constantly looking for research. I did that in air quotes, and this is a podcast, but I uh, just really read a lot of YA, and uh, I'm really excited to be here. I write kind of nerd culture, geek culture, romance in the YA genre, thinking similar things to like Rainbow Rowell or Francesca Zappia those kind of books where it's realistic high school settings, but with a nerdy or geeky twist. So podcasts are my jam. Really excited to be here. Very nice. Well, it's nice to have you here too. I'm excited. So we are going to jump right in here. Um, and just a reminder for everybody, the first part of this will be without spoilers for now. And then I will let you know when we're going to dive in deeper and we will have spoilers. Like I said, this is the first trilogy in a book. Um, Scythe is the first book. Thunderhead is the second book. And the third book is called The Toll. And it was released on November 5th. So that's very exciting. And in this first book, um, this is actually a very interesting series. I really, really love it. It's not like anything that I've ever read before. And I feel it's just very unique. And part of the reason for that is because, so this book takes place in the future, but what's really cool about it is that it's in a place where the world has evolved to become free of disease and war and hunger and death. So none of that exists anymore. And so it's kind of like what happens in a world where none of that exists. And what happens is, you know, I, I almost feel, I don't know about you, Victoria, but I almost felt like this was kind of like some people's nightmares because <laughs> what happens is that they, out of this perfectness was created a computer system a very advanced computer system called the Thunderhead and it controls the society and it doesn't make any mistakes or have any regret. You know, I, I know a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, if computers and AI start to take over the world, like this is my nightmare. <laughs> what I love about this is that it deviates from that, right? So in Scythe, the Thunderhead is altruistic. It serves humanity. It's like the perfect ethical <laughs> um, <laughs> machine. And so it never 
turns or it doesn't turn in scythe on humanity which is kind of its whole thing so that's really cool and a great deviation we've seen a lot of like post-apocalyptic kind of dystopic YA Mm -hmm. you know with Hunger Games and all of those kind of that genre well this is a futuristic book like those but it's not dystopic it's utopic so that's a really cool thing that Scythe has going on for it like you said Leah really unique yeah definitely so in this perfect world from the future though because all of these things have been eliminated nobody dies (laughs) so (laughs) there had to be a way to control the population and so what happens is out of this it was decided that there would be these people who would be called Scythe and their job is to end the lives of others in order to keep the population under control. And what's interesting here is that the Scythe are actually separate from the Thunderhead. So while the Thunderhead controls humanity, it actually has no control over the Scythe gem, as it's called. And so you know, the Scythe are here to, they have different ways. They each kind of have their own method, whether it's through swords or poison or gunshots or whatever it is. They each have their own method and how they go about gleaning people, which is what they call it. They choose someone who they're going to glean. They have a quota of how many people they're supposed to glean for the whole year. And this is just how the society operates. Well, within how, how would you feel about that, Victoria? Because I know like for me, if it were, if I were to live in this society, I would be scared out of my mind just thinking because any day somebody could just walk up to you and kill you. No warning even. That's a really good question. And I think, like you said, they have a quota. And in the book, it explores like the mathematics behind that quota. It works out to be something like one person per day for five days. So essentially, it's a work week, which I thought was just a really <laughs> kind of quirky touch to to this, you know, whole uh, really heavy material. We're talking about death here, right? And when mm-hmm. you first invited me to read Scythe, I was, I just had some concerns about the material because it's about death and utopia. And um, I think that's really uh, difficult themes to explore. Neil Mm -hmm. Schusterman does a really good job of it. And as far as answering your question, they talk about how you could live hundreds of years and never be gleaned, or you could just be gleaned in your first lifetime. And so because everyone has these big immortal lives, it's almost like they forget that death applies to them until it impacts them or their family members. And maybe we're going to get a little bit into that later on. But I actually kind of think that I would totally be down with <laughs> pretending that it doesn't happen and, and, and then living like all these fantastic lives in your immortal lifespan. So, but I mean, also, you talked about being scared of death just coming with these mm-hmm. sights and gleaning. It's kind of like it is today, right? So there is yeah. still some there's still some connectivity to our own world in our modern time and theirs, right? So there's lots of that, even though it's such a weird concept and futuristic and yeah, utopian. So it is. And it was funny too. So just to go back, cause you had mentioned about um, in, you know, their lifetime and right. it's it, because, so everybody understands this in this book, and this is not a spoiler. It's just kind of a fact in the book. The people in the book have, they're able to do what's called turn a corner. So they get to a certain age and if they want to turn a quarter, they can like go and have an operation or whatever and make themselves young again. It's like they're 
they're reborn. They can reset themselves in a way. And the other thing that they can do is <laughs> they don't really die. So except for being gleaned. So what happens is there are people who, and I'll get into this um, in just a minute. One of the main characters has a friend who he does what's called splatting. So like he'll go to the top of a 25 story building and jump off the building just for the heck of it. And he's, you know, dies kind of, but he's taken to a revival center and they bring him back to life. <laughs> so right. Yeah. It's just like crazy society and this crazy situation. But the other funny thing that I thought of when you were just talking about was, so Neil Schusterman, <laughs> last year I saw him at Y'all Fest, which was in Charleston. And it's this fantastic book and author festival. All these authors come and you can meet them and they talk on different panels and things. It's really cool. And um, last year, Neil Schusterman was there and he was on a panel and they were talking about death in their books. And one of the other authors, she was answering this question and she said, well, you can't really kill somebody in every chapter. I mean, that's just not okay. <laughs> and poor Neil Schusterman just kind of stood, sat there with like sheepish look on his face. He just got thought, up and left. Seriously. And I thought clearly this author has never read any of his books <laughs> because oh. she doesn't know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wonder if you did like a death count for his uh, trilogy, what your numbers would look like at the end. I mean, considering it's a book about people killing other people, it'd be pretty high. So, yep. you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so our two um, main characters in Scythe are named Citra and Rowan. And both of them are chosen to be an apprentice to become a Scythe. So throughout this book, they have a whole year in which they have an apprenticeship and they have to learn how to to become a scythe. They, they study under one particular scythe and at the end of the year um, only one of them will be chosen as a scythe and the other one is supposed to be allowed to just go back to their family. That is the kind of general overview of the book. So I want to go more in depth now. So if you are listening to this and you have not yet read this book and you don't want to hear any spoilers, I suggest you might not want to listen to the rest of this, go read the book and then come back and finish. But if you have read the book or if you don't care about spoilers, then by all means, please keep listening. <laughs> all right. So at the beginning of the book, um, like I said, we have this Scythe. His name is Scythe Faraday. He's another of our main characters and he comes to Citra's apartment and her family is completely freaked out because this Scythe appears. And so they immediately think one of them is going to get gleaned. Um, but he asks them for dinner and he joins them with dinner and then after that uh, he gives his the citrus mother one year of immunity and this is really cool because what they do is in order to give people immunity from being gleaned the size each of them wear a ring and they have somebody kiss the ring and then the ring reads that person's dna through their kiss and it puts them into their database and it marks them as being immune from being gleaned for a whole year which I really think is like, that's a really cool system. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And, and I think it's like what, one of the things I love about Scythe is that because we're dealing with themes of death and dying, we're also talking about grieving, right? right. And when we look back on like historical grieving practices, at least in Western cultures, one year of wearing black, right? Like that was your grieving year. Yes. And so to me, it like Neil Schusterman does such a great job of pulling out those threads of death and mourning, but then grieving mm -hmm. and how, 
how fantastic that is that immunity plays that role in this weird society that's so disconnected from the concept of death. Yeah. So what I think is, what I love is that, so this book is about death, but it also has these like brilliant little one-liners in it. Like (laughs) this scene, this opening scene just pulled me in because Scythe Faraday says to them, he finally says, okay, I'm here to glean your neighbor, but she's not home yet. And I was hungry. Yeah. (laughs) So very pointed. I'm just going to pop in and have something to eat. And now I'm going to go glean her, you know, see you later. And um, (laughs) what's funny is, is that, you know, Citra, she gets really upset about this whole thing. And, you know, during their dinner, they just have this whole conversation where, you know, Citra's just like, doesn't understand. She speaks very, she's very outgoing with him. Like she doesn't hide anything. And her mom's kind of like, Citra, shut up. You know, like, I don't want you to get cleaned because they try very hard not to offend the site. But the funny thing is, is that right before he leaves to go and glean their neighbor, he says to her, you see through the facades of the world, Citra Terranova, you'd make a good scythe. And then it says, Citra recoiled. I'd never want to be one. That, he said, is the first requirement. Then he left to kill their neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I mean, Neil Schusterman's writing is just ingenious. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. And how punchy it is, right? Like that was uh, really poignant and mm-hmm. yeah that's the first thing that like should be taken into consideration when choosing a new scythe is you shouldn't want to do this like you shouldn't right. want to go and murder people because that's what their job is but also like I gotta go do my job now so <laughs> bye peace and he, he has that punchy quality the whole way through actually one of my favorite lines in the book is right at the end and it's about the two main characters kind of figuring out their feelings for each other and I just <laughs> loved it because of the situation around how they make this confession it was just really quirky and funny and punchy and that's like throughout the book like you said really poignant and then all of a sudden like (laughs) oh by the way thanks for dinner I'm gonna go clean your neighbor now (laughs) it's just it's hilarious I love it how his writing is and I've only he he has written I don't even know like more than 20 books and I've only read I've read this series and then I've read his standalone book dry and dry is kind of like that too um he just again just has these little moments it's a very serious book it's almost scary in a way because it actually is something that is a very realistic situation that could happen and so it's kind of freaks you out a little bit but then again he does put these little moments in it so I like how he does that to kind of loosen up the tension a bit (laughs) so that is our introduction to Citra and Scythe Faraday then we move along to our next main character here, and his name is Rowan. And the, okay, so we meet Rowan when he's at the rejuvenation center because his friend Tiger has just splatted. And so he did what I said earlier. He jumped, except he jumped out the window of a 30, the 39th floor on a building because he's just a thrill seeker. So this is what he does, and he splatted, and now he's, you know, going to come back to life. And the funny thing is when we meet Rowan and you know, Neil Schusterman introduces us to this concept of splatting and then turning a corner. He mentions Rowan's grandmother and how she has reset herself to be 25 years old. So now she's also, you know, now Rowan's got this 25-year-old grandmother. And on top of that, she reset herself to be younger than his mother. And so his mother is like really angry about it and resentful. And fair enough. I mean, I would have some issues if my mom was hotter than me. Right? (laughs) 
<laughs> it's just like this crazy, this crazy concept, but it's just kind of a fun way that, you know, he shows us, this is what you can do to yourself in this world. I just realized uh, that my mother might actually listen to this. So I love you, mom. You're super hot all the time. You don't need to turn a corner. Oh goodness. This is okay. getting out of hand. Let's move on. Okay. So, <laughs> so Rowan, our fir- Rowan's first close-up interaction with Scythe Faraday and Neil Schusterman doesn't actually tell you it's Scythe Faraday right away, but we find out that it is later on. So what happens is Rowan is at school and Scythe Faraday shows up to glean a student and Rowan gets really upset and he's like, no, you can't glean. This isn't fair. And he didn't know the kid really well, but he knew who he was. And he ends up deciding to stay and be with that student while he goes into the principal's office to be gleaned. And Scythe Faraday takes note of this, but he says to him, good intentions pave many roads, not all lead to hell. And that ends up being very poignant for Rowan later on. And so Rowan, you know, he sits there and he watches this person be gleaned and he goes through this whole experience. And then what happens for him is that everybody in school kind of starts to hate him and turn on him because they think that Rowan didn't do anything to stop it. And so Rowan is just absolutely miserable. And it's just, just gosh, it, I mean, you know, it just made me feel like oh, I'm so glad I'm not in high school anymore. <laughs> I think that every day, <laughs> every single day I wake up, thank God I'm not in oh high my school gosh. anymore. And but the funny, I, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, the funny thing is, is, you know, I love reading all these books about kids who are in high school. I'm just yeah. glad I don't have to be there anymore. I love writing about kids in high school. And sometimes <laughs> I think, oh man, is this too angsty? These are really angsty teenagers. <laughs> and then I, I teach dance to some teenagers. And every time I hear them talk in the, the change room or while they're stretching at the bar, I'm like, oh no, teenagers are super angsty. Like I never have to worry about oh, yeah. my characters being too dramatic because I know teenagers <laughs> are just that dramatic. But going back to Scythe and the scene that you just mentioned, it's actually one of my favorite scenes in the entire novel. I love the introduction to Rowan through Faraday visiting the school and gleaning one of his classmates and his choice to not participate, but to be there, to bear witness and Mm -hmm. hold this person's hand through this experience, right? And in a society where death is really scary because it doesn't happen every day like it does in our society, this is like such a crazy, amazing thing. So compassionate. And you, you learn so much about Rowan's character right away. Like Mm -hmm. you just know what kind of person he is. And then throughout the novel that Hmm. gets challenged really hard. Right. And so I love this initial meeting of Rowan and in the beginning of the book, I really leaned towards Rowan. I really liked his character and I thought him and Citra were just such interesting, you know, kind of two sides of the same coin. They're both compassionate. Mm -hmm. They're both thoughtful, but Rowan has this kind of different, he's less analytical about it. I think he's less like, it's more of a feelings thing, less of an intelligence thing. And so, <laughs> so I just really liked him off the hop because he decided, he made that choice to be compassionate and help yeah. someone through. I also think it's really interesting how Faraday picked that high school student to glean because we're talking like all spoilers are on the table and you yep, can't get away from them at this point. He, Faraday does like, 
it based on statistics. They talk about mm -hmm. the mortal realm or the mortal age, which is like essentially the age of death before they conquered all these diseases and made it so that you could turn the corner. There were car accidents and there were uh, different things. And so all the statistics still exist in the Thunderhead yeah. and Faraday decides to glean based on how many people would have died in drinking and driving accidents in high school and things like that. So mm -hmm. it actually, again, another one of those threads that connects to our society and kind of makes you think a little bit about, oh, right, like that's the reality today. And that's how Faraday brings it into his gleaning practice, yeah. which is such a weird concept because like, what is a gleaning practice? Right. I don't know. Read Scythe, <laughs> you'll figure it out, I guess. <laughs> it's, uh, it was definitely a very new concept to me when I read this, that's for mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's funny because, so a friend of mine recommended this book to me in this series. And when I first started reading it, I really wasn't sure if I was going to like it. I was just like, I, I don't know. This is just so out there and so different. But, you know, I kept with it because I trust her explicitly when it comes to book recommendations. So I kept with it and I really, really just loved it a lot and just found myself absolutely devouring the books. And then I finished this one and Thunderhead, of course, before the toll came out. And I remember meeting Neil Shusterman last September, or excuse me, last, yep, it was November at Yalfest and asking him when the toll was going to come out. And I remember him telling me it would be the following year. And I was like, you're killing me. I got to wait a whole year. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, <laughs> I got in at a good time because I just on your recommendation, Red Scythe, and then read The Thunderhead, and now The Toll's already out. So I get yes. to read them bang, bang, bang. And I had not been familiar with Neil Schusterman's work before. So it was a real, like you said, I was a little bit apprehensive about the content. I wasn't sure mm -hmm. if I was going to enjoy the story. I believe you gave me two kind of recommendations, and this is the one I ended up going with. But I'm so, so thankful that I read it for this podcast because like I said earlier I read a lot of YA and usually I read it with my writer brain on like I'm <laughs> thinking about sentence structure and characterization I'm thinking about how dramatic the characters are and if I can get away with that kind of stuff in my own writing I'm one of those people that like underlines and dog ears like I'm I'd make librarians like just clutch their pearls because <laughs> I read like a, like it's a textbook and but with this with Scythe I, that was turned off like I I knew I was going to be doing this interview I knew I was going to be talking about the book but I got so consumed by it mm -hmm. and had it done in two days I have a full-time job like I never finish books anymore that quickly <laughs> um, but it was just that gripping and interesting yeah. and just knew the the content was really new not like other dystopic or futuristic books that are in the YA genre so I just fell in love with Neil Schusterman's work immediately yeah. and now I get to go read the tools yay <laughs> he is fantastic all right well back to our story so after we get these introductions of our characters what happens is say Faraday sends both of them an invitation to go to the opera of all places and he meets them there and well before he comes in though Citra and Rowan sit down they get there they sit next to each other and they meet each other and then he comes in and he tells them that he wants to meet them again the next day and so they meet again and then he says hey I want you both to be my apprentice so the now the positive thing about this is for them if they say yes and they become a site apprentice then their families are immune for wait a minute 
their families are immune for life if after the apprenticeship they get chosen to be the site. But their families are also immune for the year while they are the apprentice. So that's a big perk for them. Well, at least for Citra. Citra, that's part of why she chooses it. And it's really more for her younger brother, Ben, because she's very attached to him and he's very young and she worries about him. So one of her biggest reasons to say yes to become an apprentice is for him. Rowan, on the other hand, he doesn't care about his family because his parents pretty much abandoned him. And they're like, ah, whatever, you know, we don't want you. So and with the way I mentioned before, how he's being treated really badly at school, he doesn't want to deal with any of that anymore. So he's like, yeah, whatever, I'll be an apprentice. <laughs> so it's like an escape for him. And for Citra, it's a way to make sure that, you know, she can help save her brother. So it's interesting that they've got like such a different dynamic, you know, and different backgrounds and reasoning for why they want to be a scythe apprentice. Because Citra, and this would be me, this would totally be me. She really struggles with this because you're taking somebody's life and not just like one person, thousands of people. I mean, you know, and that's not an easy thing. I would never want to do it. So, you know, she definitely had a lot harder of a time making that decision. I was going to say, and uh, Faraday, Scythe Faraday would say that's the it's the first thing or whatever, whatever he mm -hmm. says to them when I don't want to do that. Well, that means you're going to be good at it because you That's don't right. want to do it. Right. Um, I, I agree though. I can't imagine having to be put in that position and having to make that choice. I think family would be a big motivator for me too, right? To be able yeah, to protect them. Definitely. So that was hers, you know, and Rowan was just like, ah, whatever. I just don't want to be tortured at school anymore because they leave school. They stop going to school to become an apprentice. Now, I should say here too that uh, normally when a scythe takes on an apprentice, they only take one apprentice. They don't have two. So Scythe Faraday is pretty much, he's kind of breaking the rules a little bit and having two apprentices, but he really wanted both of them to be under him. And so he chooses two. And, um, you know, he goes down all the rules, of course, there's got to be rules to be, you know, an apprenticeship. He tells them they cannot date each other, which, <laughs> you know, you put a boy, teenage boy and a teenage girl together. They have to live together, train together every day. Not exactly easy to tell them don't have feelings for each other. You know? Well, and in such a, like a unique circumstance, like they, mm -hmm. they're the only two people that know what the other one's going through, right? Exactly. Because like you said, this hasn't been done before. They only, scythes only are supposed to take on one apprentice at a time, right? So yep. for them to have each other in that experience, like, dude, you set yourself up for failure. Faraday, totally. come on. Because you know that this is what's going to happen, that they're going to want to be together and they're going to develop feelings for each other. And they do. I mean, it's different for them because they can't, they're not supposed to act on it. So it's a different kind of relationship. And it's actually really funny. We'll get there, but <laughs> I'm just going to talk about it now. There is a moment later on when they're together in a room and it's like really tense and they're both thinking about it. And then all of a sudden, one of them just says, all right, let's get this over with. Or, or like Citra just kisses Rowan and says, all right, that's done. Now we can move on. You know? 
And I love that at that point, I think like, yeah, it was just, it was like, let's get this out of the way. Now it's out in the open. We don't have to have this angsty back and forth. But then she says, I'm not going to fall in love with you. And mm -hmm. he says that to her, I'm not going to fall in love with you. And it's very obvious that their feelings are running much deeper, even as they make this kind of declaration after kissing yeah. um, in this dark, tense situation. And so I, I'm a guilty, like, uh, my guilty pleasure when I read YA is the romance. I love how, yeah. like, dramatic and angsty it can be. And so it's nice, though, that this book doesn't just hinge on that. It has so much more weight and gravitas to it, but you still get this little romance thread that kind of goes through it. And I guiltily, my guilty pleasure, would have liked to have more of them like secret rendezvous and kissing and stuff like that. But <laughs> it made so much sense for the story that they, that they really hold back. And then it makes it more meaningful when they get to the end and the circumstances that unfold there. So yeah, I love that that scene where let's just get this out of the way <laughs> it was hilarious anyway <laughs> sorry we just so, totally got derailed by romance it's okay <laughs> so he gives them all these rules and they they also have to learn to you know scythe live very modestly they don't have many material possessions at all um some of them like don't even cook for themselves very much like when he went to citrus house to get something to eat because and everybody is very accommodating to a scythe a scythe comes up to somebody and asks them for something they will be given it no matter what so they're essentially provided for everything that they need by society but citra and rowan also have to study history and science and nature and life and then of course they have to learn how to use a whole a slew of different weapons and they also learn about poisons too because you know they're going to end up having to pick how they want to glean people if they they are the ones who are chosen to be the scythe. And I should say too, they live with Scythe Faraday. And then, so pretty soon, as Citra and Rowan go out with, start to go out gleaning with Scythe Faraday, now they cannot do it because they're not allowed to. They just, you know, kind of watch and observe and see how it's done. But they, you know, realize that how everybody reacts to a scythe when they see them. And, you know, Neil Schusterman puts three different kinds of people. There's the deniers who pretend that the scythe aren't even there. <laughs> Then there's the escape artist who run by really quick and, you know, try to look like they're not running away from the scythe, even though they really are. And then we have the scythe, who are the ones who constantly approach the scythe and they're like, can I do something for you today? Can I buy you something to drink? Can I get you some food? Do you need a warm coat or, you know, like any of these type of things. And um, maybe here we should talk about how people know who the sites are, oh, right? Yes. Because we haven't talked about their cloaks. Mm -hmm. Yes, each site has a cloak that they wear and they each pick their color. So they have their own one that's specific to them. And what's also interesting about the sites is that when they become a site, they change their name. So if Citra or Rowan were to become a site, they would change their name to sites whatever. And everybody and chooses a name of somebody who they admire from history. So like Scythe Curry, who comes in later on, she named herself after Marie Curry, who was like the dairy woman, right? Pasteurization. That's what she did, I think. <laughs> no, she she was oh, a, a scientist. She, oh my gosh. She was a scientist. I am with Marie history. Curie, uh, she, yeah. she mm -hmm. discovered radium, I think. 
so she she worked with like radioactive materials and her and her husband did a whole bunch of like scientific experiments and I'm stuff glad but one of us knew that because you could tell <laughs> i did not pay attention in history class but Scythe, like honorable Scythe Curie, uh, likes to cook. So maybe that's where you were getting. That's probably it. I don't really know. That's part of her character. It's fine. So, yeah. <laughs> so we also find out, uh, while Ronit, Rowan and Citra are in their apprenticeship, we find out about people who are called unsavories. And so those are people who, Neil Schusterman describes them as, people who found enjoyment in activities that bordered on the fringe of the law. Sometimes unsavories actually broke the law in minor ways, although most lost interest eventually because they were always <laughs> caught by the thunderhead and reprimanded by peace officers. And the more troublesome offenders were tweaked with shock nanites in their blood, just powerful enough to deter any scoffing of the law. And if that didn't work, you got your own personal peace officer 24-7. So these are, you know, like criminals in our day. You know, they try and break the laws and they get marked as unsavory. So on their, everything in the Thunderhead, in their ID card, everything is marked with a U to show people they're unsavory. And the other thing that was mentioned in this paragraph that I just read is about the shock nanite. So this is an really, it's something I found really interesting in the book is that everyone has these nanites inside of them and they can turn them up or they can turn them down. So if they're experiencing a lot of pain, they can turn them up to help control the amount of pain that they're experiencing in their body. Or, you know, they could be turned down completely so that they experience more emotions and pain. It's like, it's kind of a crazy thing. I don't know. What did you think about these whole like shock nanites and stuff? Well, and it wasn't just shock nanites. Like you could micromanage pretty much any part of human physio physiology, right? Yes. So they've got healing nanites that speed up healing. They've got emotional nanites that <laughs> will help with like emotional regulation. And uh, they've got like uh, chemical ones for hormones and for depression, anxiety, things like that. And so really they've been able to micromanage all of these aspects of being human and these struggles, I guess, for people. And one mm -hmm. of the things I really loved about Scythe was that we actually have a lot of world building in this book because it's a futuristic world, but it's not dystopic. We get a lot of just different unique world building things like shock nanites or mm -hmm. unsavories or like the justification why there's no more poverty or hunger and because there's no poverty and hunger people aren't committing <laughs> grievous crimes anymore yeah. so death goes away and all these other things like follow <laughs> after we do that so it's it's very um interesting to me like the world building that goes into it and just that these these like the control that we have over the human experience in this futuristic society is just blows my mind and yeah. the reason I write like YA set in high schools today is because I'm not <laughs> creative enough to do that and so I have great respect for writers who build worlds and do that successfully right so whether or not it's like a, a novel like this or a fantasy or sci-fi novel I'm just blows me away how creative people can be and yeah like who would have thought of shock nanite nanites being able to control that much of the human experience right yeah I agree completely. He does an amazing job with this. What's funny too is so we find out a lot about Scythe Faraday's personality because well he he picks certain types of people and he does research in the Thunderhead on how to pick who to glean. 
he also, what he does is he, you know, he doesn't give people notice, you know, he'll go up to somebody and say, you know, I'm cleaning you today. Here's how this is going to happen. You're about to die. And then he goes and after they, after a site glean somebody, they have to go to the family and they give that family, that person's family immunity for a whole year. But what Scythe Faraday also does is he goes to the funeral of all the people who he gleans. And he, you know, he's like, it's just common decency. But not if they don't all do that. And so it just shows you, you know, the differences in people. I really like that he does that. It just shows that even though he's got this horrible job of having to kill people, he's still this very humane person himself who has feelings and compassion for the families of the people who he has to glean. And um, so he, he teaches Citra and Rowan about the Scythe commandments. And this is crazy. So these are like 10, kind of like our 10 commandments from the Bible. He's got, they have the Scythe commandments that they have to follow, which are, you know, kind of the opposite. <laughs> I mean, Scythe <laughs> commandment number one, thou shalt kill. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, and then we've got thou shalt kill with no bias, bigotry, or malice, a forethought. So they have to just pick somebody at random. They cannot glean somebody because they're mad at them or they don't like them. You know, and then they, if, here's another important one, thou shalt kill the beloved of those who resist. And this comes up quite a few times in the book. If anybody tries to resist being gleaned, their family gets killed. Mm -hmm. So it's another motivation for people to just say, okay, and go along with it because they don't want their whole entire family to be gleaned just because they're being, you know, scared and saying no. And um, they also get immunity for their whole life as long as they live because they're a site. And it says, Thou here's another important thing. Thou shalt lead an exemplary life in word and deed and keep a journal of each and every day. So we haven't talked about this yet, but the beginning of each chapter, Neil Schusterman puts a journal entry from one of the sites. So each site must write a journal every single and write in it every single day. They write about their gleanings and everything that happens. And Faraday has Citra and Rowan each start their own journal, which they kind of think is stupid, but <laughs> it's required as part of the system. And it actually, one of the journals comes into play in a big way in Thunderhead, but we're not going to talk about that right now. But, um, but it's really important and it's really cool that he puts little tidbits of the journal entries before each chapter because it just kind of gives you extra perspective on the different sites whose journals he pulls from and I really kind of like that and so they're also not supposed to kill another site thou shalt kill no site beyond thyself so if they feel like self-cleaning for whatever reason they may but they cannot kill another site and then here we go Thou shalt have neither spouse nor spawn. So again, not supposed to marry and they're not supposed to have children and these relationships, which of course complicates everything. And then we already talked about rule number eight, which is thou shalt claim no earthly possessions, save thy robes, ring, and journal. So they're supposed to live a very simple life. So those are kind supposed of- Supposed to. Supposed to. But as we find out shortly- that doesn't always happen. <laughs> um, and actually, doesn't. and actually, we're just about we're at that point right now because we meet this site. So we have this like chapter that at first seems really random. I read it and I was like, okay, why? Why did I just read that? <laughs> and then you know you realize later on it's not random. It's very purposeful. 
So there's a chapter where there's a group of people on a flight. They're going on a flight somewhere and a whole group, not just one, but a whole group of scythes come aboard the plane. And now they all have these very glitzy robes. They're like bedazzled robes. They're bright colors and they've all got like, you know, sparkles and jewels on them and all this kind of thing. So they are very, very showy as much as possible. And pretty much what happens is that they say that they are going to glean the entire flight. They're not just there for one person. They're going to glean the entire flight. And the lead site says to them, I am your completion. And right there, we get our first glimpse at Scythe Goddard is his name, who, oh man, I mean, that one phrase, I'm your completion, you can just tell right there that he's going to be a pretty arrogant character. And then you read more and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the most self-centered, arrogant person I have ever read about in my entire life. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, and like what's done so well is that through the first, I don't know how much, how many pages in that scene is, but f- from the beginning of the book to now, we've actually kind of bought into the, mm-hmm. the whole system, right? We're like, oh, this, okay. So for this society, for this world, this makes sense to do it this way. And man, Scythe Faraday is amazing. He's actually one of my favorite characters in the book. I, I love his character. I was heartbroken later on. And then, um, <laughs> but then we get to this point and it's like, holy moly, like, yeah, there's this, this, breakneck kind of change in the pace and how how this power can be abused and you instantly don't like this guy because yep. yeah he is super arrogant and and very like he leans into that uh gods on earth kind of idea that the sites they're revered they're like almost a religious order in and of themselves they have these rules and commandments mm-hmm. and traditions and all of this stuff but society respects them and caters to them well then goddard takes that and like runs with it so hard and fast that you just he's instantly unlikable and then he plays such a main role in the rest of the story and he actually was like i'm i'm scared of him i'm not scared of like faraday or scythe curie who like you said glean with such humanity it's this guy who thinks that he who has a god complex right Oh, he totally does. And he drove me crazy. And he's supposed to, you know, but it's just one of those, like, he's just one of those characters who you kind of want to jump into the pages of the book and strangle him because you hate him so much. Yeah, he gives you, like, the shivers, like. "Mm." Oh, completely. And his, so we find out, too, he has some pretty uh, nasty motivations because the next time that we see him is another group leaning. He goes into a mall. He goes into a food court at the mall, and there's this fourth grade age girl who's eating pizza at the mall after school and her name is Esme and she's there and she hides and he gleans everybody in the food court except for her and he goes up to her and says you know that she needs to come with him he says he already talked to her mom and that you know he told her that he's gonna take her with him and so Esme goes with him she's like okay and you know you're kind of wondering why did he just do that and then you find, we find out later on, it's to blackmail somebody. Mm-hmm. He's just, I mean, this nasty, nasty man. And continuing on with our story, we find, you know, 
Tiger comes into the picture again at one point. He comes to visit Rowan. He sneaks in. Rowan sneaks him into their apartment while Citra's out and Clive Faraday is out. And Tiger's not, he becomes more of an important character in the next book. Uh, but in this one, he just kind of pops in and out. And essentially what we see of him is that he is a party boy. He's actually, oh my gosh, if this were a real job, he is a professional party goer. So he just goes to parties. It gets paid mm-hmm. for it. I mean, yep. how many people would love to do that for a living? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I think like, this is kind of, we're getting into where things start changing really fast because mm-hmm. we've established this world. We've kind of introduced some problems around how the system operates and the commandments and uh, set Citra and Rowan up to be equals, actually, yeah. um, which I was expecting right away for them not to be equals because I kind of, and like I'd read, you know, like the, the book jacket and I'd read uh, just a little bit online about the book. Um, but at the beginning, they're kind of equal. And so yeah. then, then things start changing really, really quickly after yes. Tiger kind of visits and stops by. And then we've got a whole bunch of things that happen and just flip the story on its head. Oh, yeah. So what happens is too, so here it's like three months into their apprenticeship. They go to, it's called Conclave, where all the sites come together and they come together to resolve disputes and review policies and mourn, um, you know, for those that they've gleaned. And so Rowan and Citra are there with Seth Faraday and they meet other um, apprentices and they kind of have to sit through all this and they also have to take a test. And if they fail the test, there's a consequence for them, which will be decided by their site. Um, and this is kind of, it's kind of cute because this is where we start to see their relationship, their feelings come out for each other because we have this moment where Citra tells Rowan that she would really miss him if something happened and he was disqualified. So, you know, we just see little bits of their relationship more coming together. And, and this is when Scythe Curry is introduced. They, you know, Scythe Faraday points her out and she's actually called the Grand Dame of Death. Because Fantastic. Seriously, this is like, this is an awesome name. But she, it's because of the way that she used to glean and how she went about it. But she, we find out later that she, you know, it's kind of changed her way. So she's not as hefty with how she gleans. It's different. With, she gleans differently. So, and this is where Citra and Rowan are first introduced to Scythe Goddard. And Faraday very much says, stay away from him. You don't want to be anywhere near him or his crew. And we also find out about the High Blade. The High Blade, his name is Xenocrates, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I apologize, Neil Schusterman, if I'm not. But he is, the High Blade is the one who is the most powerful of their region, and he presides over the conclave. So he's like, you know, a head senator or whatever, how that works. And so here's something interesting that happens. And again, we find out more about Scythe Goddard at this conclave. The High Blade says that Scythe Goddard is being accused of Melech and that he is. And so, you know, Goddard's like, well, what am I being accused of? And he says, unnecessarily cruelty in your gleaning. So there's this whole thing and it's pushed aside and, you know, nothing comes of it. And Faraday says to Citra and Rowan, there was no anonymous accuser. Seth Goddard accuses himself. And Citra's like, well, why would he do that? Faraday just says, to take the steam out of his enemies. It's the oldest trick in the book. Now, anyone who accuses him will be assumed to be the cowardly anonymous accuser, and no one will go after him. So, I mean, Seth Goddard is, he's very clever. 
and he's very conniving. He comes with all these schemes and plans, but he really, really thinks things through. So he really has like this evil, but he mastermind. He's like an evil genius mastermind <laughs> with the totally. way that he comes up with all this stuff. So. And in, in this society, like in this, I keep coming back to the world building because I'm just mm-hmm. so in love with it. But we, we hear from the Thunderhead, I think, that government has been like done away with the best thing that they that they ended wasn't death it wasn't disease it was actually government human government because mm-hmm. of all like the machinations that go on in a political system well the system is separate from the thunderhead it's separate from the laws of this world and we see that those that political intrigue is alive and well through mm-hmm. Scythe goddard and and faraday elaborating like that's the oldest trick in the book well like oh there there it is there's human corruption right and we yeah. see how that plays out through the rest of the novel yeah and this is at the point where everything changes for Sidra and Rowan so what happens is Scythe Rand who is one of the Scythe who works with Scythe Goddard she gets upset and she says it's not right that Scythe Faraday has two apprentices we're only supposed to have one I don't think that this is fair and she proposes you know and she says it seems like that they're friends they're gonna stand up for each other because what happens is when they go forward for their testing their testing is in front of everybody they have to answer one question and Scythe Curry asks them a question and they answer and Citra gets asked what's the worst thing that she's ever done and she gives an answer but Scythe Curry says nope, you're lying. You failed this. And now, you know, she says you will be punished by, by Scythe Faraday. So then Rowan gets up, he is next and Scythe Curry asks him a question. He fails on purpose because he's trying to, he doesn't want Citra to be the only one to have consequences. He feels bad. You know, he's developing these feelings for her. So he fails on purpose. So Scythe Rand takes notice of that and is like, hey, these two are becoming friends. This isn't about being friends. This is about who's going to become a Scythe. And so she proposes that whichever one of them wins at the end of the year and becomes the Scythe has to glean the other one. And of course, you know, Scythe Faraday is very upset about this, but in the end, the high blade allows it. So this is what happens. So now we have this situation where (laughs) Rowan and Citra have to live with each other, be apprentices together, learn this, but at the end, but they know that in, you know, however many more months, one of them's going to have to kill the other one. And this is actually, this is actually where that kiss takes place (laughs) then. It's after this, they're in the room, there's all this tension because of what's going to happen. And that's when the kiss takes place. And she says, but I haven't fallen in love with you, you know, just so you know. And it's it's to save face, you know, like we talked about before, to try and save themselves because now they know somebody has to kill the other one. And from this point, it just kind of goes from there. (laughs) We see even more of Scythe Goddard's arrogance. He goes to a mansion and he just demands that the owner gives up his estate. And he's like, hey, I'm taking over. You give me this house or I'm gonna kill you. And the man feels like he has no choice. And then, and then they do glean some of the people who work at the mansion for this man, including the pool boy. And Scythe Goddard says, you know, I'm gonna keep you around. I want you to be my pool boy. So he makes a poor owner of the house his pool boy and him and his family have to live in a little pool house while Scythe Goddard and Scythe Rand and the rest of his crew take over. 
So again, we see like how opposite Scythe Goddard is of all the other Scythe because they're supposed to live very modestly and not have anything. And yet here he is <laughs> living in this huge estate and mansion. And then he throws all these pool parties. And this is where Tiger comes in again because Tiger comes to the house and goes to the pool parties and all this jazz. So it's kind of crazy. And then as if Citra and Rowan didn't have enough trouble with knowing that they have to glean one of each other, then something else happens. They're woken up in the middle of the night. Size Faraday has gone out. He told them he was going to go out and that he would be back. And then they're woken up in the middle of the night. High Blade Denocrates is there along with some officers. And he tells them that Size Faraday cleaned himself and he threw himself in front of a train. And they just can't believe it. But he says, you know, Scythe, or the high blade's not stupid. <laughs> you know? He says, he did it to spare one of you from having to glean the other. Because in theory, they should be let out of their apprenticeship at this point. In theory. <laughs> <laughs> but nothing ever goes how it's supposed to. So what happens is, is that like Curry has stepped up and said that she would like to have Citra as her apprentice. And poor Rowan, it gets sent to Scythe Goddard. And this is where it kind of goes downhill. <laughs> yes, this is where it gets ugly really, really fast. And mm -hmm. and this part of the book was the hardest part for me to read, actually. In a, in a book where we're talking about death, like I was expecting it all to be really heavy, but it's, it's not all heavy. Lots of it is quite funny, like you mentioned, Leah, and punchy and quirky mm -hmm. and just interesting. But then all of a sudden, we have the death of Faraday, who is my favorite character and I, I was so crushed I was so crushed and angry but then of course the motive made sense and uh he's trying to be compassionate and release them and Goddard didn't correct me if I'm wrong but he wanted both Citra and Ro Rowan yes. and yeah. then yeah Curry stepped in to make sure that mm -hmm. that didn't happen because he would have just pit them against each other and like terrible brutal acts and so she kind of prevents Citra from having to be a part of that but she can't protect Rowan too right. and and uh Rowan yeah this again one of my favorite characters and he goes <laughs> through some really hard knocks because this psychopath is his mentor <laughs> now Yes. And yeah, and, and it's crazy. And then, but what's cool is, you know, what I really like is that now we learn more about Scythe Curry and her background mm -hmm. and she gleans completely differently than Scythe Faraday did. So she likes to travel and goes to these like smaller towns and she walks around and just kind of picks somebody at random, which is, you know, kind of crazy, but whatever. So <laughs> she picks somebody at random and gleans them and that's how she does it. And then something happens here. So Citra and Scythe Curry are having this conversation and Scythe Curry says to Citra, you know, the Thunderhead sees all and it sees everything. And that gets Citra thinking and she's like, oh my gosh, yes, I know what I can do here. Because she doesn't believe that Scythe Faraday would just glean himself. And, you know, her first thought is that somebody killed him. So she starts to dig deep into the Thunderhead, into the back brain of the Thunderhead, it's called. Um, so kind of like hacking in a way, I guess. And, you know, she, cause she wants to see if she can find video of him throwing himself in front of the train and everything and kind of figure out what happened because she does not believe that he really gleaned himself. So now Rowan, poor Rowan, man, he's with, he's with, um, Seth Goddard and he meets Esme and Seth Goddard says to him that Esme is the key to the future. And we find out soon why. But what happens is Scythe Goddard has Scythe uh, Rand turn Rowan's nanites off 
and then they beat him senseless pretty much because they say that they want him to experience real pain. And Seth Goddard says, what you see is the boy dying and now the man will emerge. And Rowan's like, isn't there a better way to do this? <laughs> you know, and Rowan just feels like he does it. Seth Goddard's not doing things right. He knows that the way that he does things is wrong. And he kind of questions him about it. And Seth Goddard's like, well, I would rather have a mind that's clear than one that's right. So he knows very well that the way that he lives is not correct. He doesn't care. He just wants nope. to do what he wants to do. He has no <laughs> conscience and he justifies um, his actions by we should like what we do too. Everyone right. else gets to live these beautiful utopian lives, but we are bound by these, he thinks, archaic laws and we don't get to mm -hmm. enjoy anything or have any personal comforts. Like we do the hardest work, so we should get the biggest reward sort of idea. Um, yeah. And that's kind of his, his jam. And that's what he, it's the drum that he beats throughout the rest of the novel and preaches to his followers. So here too, we get an introduction to another group of people. Citra goes to tell, to share with a woman that her brother has been gleaned. And she ends up at this cult. It's a cult, really. They're called the Tonists. And essentially, these people don't acknowledge death by sight. They think that it's not natural. They're all about like aroma and sound. It's kind of really weird, but <laughs> they worship wavelengths and vibrations. And they talk about like the great vibration. And they have this huge like tuning fork and it, it sounds ridiculous but like this is their cult this is what they believe in um and so this is part of the culture is just this cult and it's it's a small thing but they do come in again over the next the next book they so it's important at the same time because they do play another role later on in thunderhead but we just kind of get this quick introduction to them here and it kind of shows us like what some of the realities in a world where there is no suffering or where there is no need for religion in that sense of like people don't need to cling on to things because they've kind of they've perfected everything right mm -hmm. and so if there's no suffering you don't worship anything so these are like the last kind of remnants of organized faith and and they they like kind of it's kind of funny though because it's it's a joke it's like they they talk about in the book how it's a mockery of like mo or the of our times it's a mockery of the faith that existed back in the day in the age of mortality because nobody really needs it and they explore that a little bit like we talked about the oh we talked about the opera at the beginning right and yeah. they talk about how they can't connect with any of this art because the the suffering and the love and the loss and those big big human emotions they just don't access them the same way because because everything's so perfect right and yeah. when you have a perfect life you don't really need or want for anything right and so it's a the tonus are another way to explore <laughs> this fantastic just world and you're right they come in more later in thunderhead but uh, it's really important that we meet them here because it just mm -hmm. establishes like how hollow, I guess, the existence is when you don't need or want for anything and how people are still trying to grasp for, you know, more, even though, you know, they've got healing nanites and can speed up their yeah. healing time. I agree. And so what's interesting too, so we start to see Rowan go through more of his training with Scythe Goddard and as if he wasn't disturbing enough, Scythe Goddard tells Rowan that 
He says, the thrill of the hunt and the joy of the kill simmers in all of us. So it's like he enjoys killing people. He, he, and it's just like, oh my gosh, this man is really disgusting and wretched because he enjoys it. And, but here's where we kind of start to see Rowan question himself because what happens is while he's going through all of this training, he, he starts to wonder, okay, is there any bit of what Scythe Goddard is doing that is actually okay? Like, is it, if he says, if I learned to enjoy gleaning, would that be such a tragedy? And we start to see these, you know, and Rowan really ends up kind of going through this hard time because he really questions himself and what he was taught by Scythe Faraday and what Scythe Goddard is not telling him. And he kind of is like wrestling with himself in a way. And he, he even, um, kind of tells himself, you know, I'm a decent person. I'm a decent person. I'm a decent person. Because what happens is he is told during his training, they bring out like 12 people out into this open area of, of the field on the mansion. And he is told to kill them. Oh, oh, sorry. They bring out 13 and he's told to kill all but one of them. And he's just like, I can't do it. I can't do it. But yet what happens is he does it. And then at the end, I'm going to read this. It says, while part of him felt like falling to his knees and hurling up breakfast, another part of him wanted to howl to the moon like a wolf. So it's almost like he kind of enjoyed it a little bit. And, but he, he's like, oh my gosh, I can't enjoy this. This isn't okay. So we see this, like this really, um, just this torture that, you know, and fight within himself that Rowan really starts to go through and kind of continues on through the rest of the book as well. So then they go, Rowan goes gleaning with Scythe Goddard and his crew, and they go to an office building and again do a group gleaning. But what happens is because Rowan is having this torment, he kind of sneaks off to a different room in the office building and lets all these people go and he's like, get out, get out, get out. And Later, what happens is he, he finds Scythe Volta, who's with them, and he realizes that Volta is different than the other Scythe who with Goddard because he finds him crying. And Volta's um, about the same age as Rowan is. And so, you know, they have a talk, and they talk about and say, you know, Goddard isn't a Scythe. He's a killer. And they just know that it's not okay, and Scythe Volta really struggled with it. And again, it's just... I mean, you can't have it. You got to be a real psychopath to enjoy killing people like that. But you know, Goddard is so. <laughs> well, and it kind of explores like they're all serial killers in the sense that they kill people serially. Um, that's their job. They have to do five a week. Goddard and his little gang, they don't because they have this really luxurious lifestyle where they're partying and they leave all their gleanings for like these huge massacres. And yet, even though all the scythes do the same thing, Goddard has really given away to like those psychopathic tendencies and has really redefined what a serial killer would look like in yes. this in this world in this genre and in in this story right and so he's like yeah he's super scary oh for sure <laughs> that man gives me nightmares <laughs> and and he like he is abusive like he's terrible mm -hmm. to Rowan and not just like psychologically like kill these 12 people leave one left and 
all that he actually physically like is abusive in the sense of he's like getting him to do these gauntlets and um mm -hmm. this really physical training and kind of breaking his spirit and so we see through this kind of part of the book rowan's spirit that super compassionate boy from the beginning get broken down and all of the stuff that he's learned about what it means to be a good scythe is twisted on its head because of Goddard's like poisonous influence. Yeah, exactly. So we come to another har uh, another conclave a few months later and Citra and Rowan, Rowan see each other again. And Citra tells Rowan that when she was looking in the Thunderhead, she found videos of Scythe Faraday at the train station, but not of him actually dying and that the cameras didn't work. And she also found out that there were three witnesses, the three people who supposedly saw him bleed himself were given immunity that day. So again, they start to think that, you know, maybe Faraday was killed by another scythe, but they don't know for sure. Then we have this other moment where we see Rowan and what he's become. Now, the thing is though, he, he doesn't want, he wants to lose. Like he wants Citra to win and become the scythe. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be the one to do it. So they have to do another test at the conclave and they're fighting. They have to do a martial arts fight and he tries to let Citra win, but she won't have it. And she's really fighting him back. And then he ends up twisting her neck and breaking her neck and rendering her deadish. So then she has to go to the revival center and come alive again. You know, and Scythe Goddard is like super excited because he's really proud of Rowan for doing that. And meanwhile, Scythe Curry is like, um, Citra, Rowan's a bit changed now. You know, you need to be really careful around him. And of course, she doesn't want to believe that because he's her friend and she has feelings for him. And it's so complicated <laughs> in so many ways. But we find out, here's what we find out um, about Esme. Goddard, of course, there's another party. And the High Blade comes. And Goddard calls Esme over. And the High Blade looks really panicked. And so what happens is, is that we figure out here, and Rowan figures out that Esme is the High Blade's illegitimate child. And Goddard holds that over his head in order to get what he wants from the High Blade. So just adding to another level of Scythe Goddard's personality. <laughs> and everything, how purposeful it is, right? Like yes. that Esme is there, that her character exists in the story and that Goddard uses it to manipulate the High Blade, who, I mean, he's not like the best guy, but he's not outrightly terrible. He's kind of a yeah. neutral character in terms of his morals and ethics, but he's being blackmailed, like, and with his daughter, and he actually jumps into the pool, right? And because yes. he's got gold on his mm -hmm. cloak or his robes, he sinks in the pool. Um, and that was super intentional. Goddard doesn't do lift a finger to help him. Nope. He just wants to embarrass them, and he knows that he can, because he knows that the High Blade will do anything to save his daughter. And it's mm -hmm. just, yeah, Goddard is very manipulative. So manipulative that he also puts this plan in motion to get rid of Citra. And what he does is he, so the next day that there are guards who come to Citra, to Scythe Curry's house, to, and they say that Citra is accused of murdering Scythe Faraday of all things. So what happens is that, you know, they find out that she was looking into the back brain of the Thunderhead, and then they have this journal entry from Scythe Faraday's journal. And 
So they have this journal entry and it says, I fear I've made a dreadful mistake. An apprentice should never be chosen in haste, but I was foolish. She comes to my door at night. I hear her in the darkness and can only guess her intentions. Only once did I hear her entering my room, catch her. Had I actually been asleep, who can say what she might have done? So he also says, I'm concerned that she may mean to end me. She's shrewd, determined, calculating, and I've taught her the many arts of killing far too well. So we have this journal entry that seems like it's condemning Citra. So she's being accused of murdering him. Meanwhile, we find out from Scythe Curry that the journal entry was actually one that Scythe Faraday wrote about her it was an old one, but Goddard is using it and twisting it to make it seem like it's about Citra. And so the, here's where we find out that Scythe Faraday and um, Scythe Curry had a relationship. She was his apprentice and she was 17 and he was 22. She was very infatuated with him. And, you know, she would go to his room and he misunderstood, like he didn't know that she had this feeling for him. <laughs> But, which, yeah, I could say a lot about that, but <laughs> for the sake of time. Well, then Saif Curry tells Faraday that she loves him. And, you know, he just takes it the wrong way, you know, but he realizes. So anyway, 50 years later, they become lovers and they break the Scythe rules. They have this secret relationship for seven years and then they get found out. And so what happens is they're, you know, they're punished. They don't get kicked out, but they're punished. So anyway, that's kind of fun to learn that fact. You know, like, oh, okay, more pieces of the puzzle kind of come in a picture here. <laughs> and for two really austere characters because they're kind of like the moral pillars in the story. And so it's just like, they're such pivotal characters. And then they've got this little, <laughs> little tragic romance between the two of them too. Yeah. And it's like, immediately you just feel for them. And it's, it's just delightful when it kind of comes up in the story. And that's how Curry helps Citra get out of yeah. the situation that she's in. Yeah. Or Scythe Curry wants Citra to go in hiding. She said, you know, Citra's going to act as a tonist and be like, she's a lone pilgrim traveling. She gives her the name of this man. And she said she wants her, Citra to travel to Buenos Aires to go and see him. So Citra travels in disguise for a very, very, very long time. She gets to Buenos Aires, finds this man whose name she was told is Gerald. And lo and behold, guess who it is? It's Scythe Faraday. And we Yay! find out she's not really dead. <laughs> this was so. the happiest part of the book for me. Oh my I, gosh, me too. I turned to uh, my husband and I said, if they don't bring this character back, I'm not reading anymore. <laughs> And then, of course, like when he was brought back, I was just so excited. Because I was just so, so happy that yeah. he was there living this weird little hermit life. Oh, my gosh. It's hilarious. He's living on the beach as a hermit. It's just really funny. And he's, and, but of course, because he's been gone and he's been in hiding, he doesn't know what's happened. So just Citra, first, of course, she's like, why are you not dead? And he tells <laughs> her that he faked his death to save her and Rowan. And he's been living here in Buenos Aires this whole time, thinking that her and Rowan were released from their apprenticeships and that everything is fine. He has no clue. So Citra is there, and then she fills him in and tells him everything that's going on. Meanwhile, you know, Scythe Curry kind of works to get Citra's name cleared so that when it comes time for the winter conclave, uh, Citra can go back to go for her test. And so Scythe Curry, you know, tells Citra, the high blade's just going to pretend nothing ever happened. You're good. It's fine. I took care of it. <laughs> So Citra comes back. This is when they have to fight to see 
who's going to win. And we also find out that Scythe Goddard's group, they've met their quota, but they keep gleaning even still. What happens is they go to the Tonus cult. So we have these Tonus again. They bring all kinds of weapons with them, and they also have a flamethrower because killing somebody with a, a knife or something isn't harmful enough. They have to bring a flamethrower to torch the place. Well, and it's it that serves a purpose in the storytelling because mm-hmm. um, even though they've got all this technology to heal people from being dead-ish, like when they splat or when they're stabbed, fire, you can't reconstruct people when there's just ashes left, right? And so right. that it's a very violent way to kill someone or to glean someone in this case with the scythes, but it serves a purpose in the story. It does. And it, so what happens? happens here is that Scythe Goddard tells Rowan that he wants Rowan to glean with them and that's not allowed because they haven't gone to the last conclave yet and you know Rowan doesn't have a ring but Scythe Goddard says no 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 you're gonna do this with us so they go to the cult Rowan actually lets people escape because he feels guilty he can't do it the other Scythes are all running around killing people Rowan finds Volta crying because he gleaned children and so he was really upset and then he slits his wrist and he kills himself because he just couldn't handle it anymore and what ends up happening then after Volta dies in Rowan's arms is Rowan eventually comes across Goddard again and he tells him he's not going to glean. He calls Scythe Goddard a monster because Goddard wants Rowan. He gets the, the curate, the head of the Tonus cult that they're at, and he wants Rowan to kill him and Rowan won't do it. So he calls him a monster. Rowan takes the sword from Scythe Goddard, though. He pretends like he's going to green the cloy, but then he stabs Scythe Goddard and he says to him, I am what you made me. And it's like everything kind of comes full circle right there. He then, he cuts off Scythe Goddard's head. Like he's just got to put in this final glow, glow. He wants to make sure that Goddard is really, really dead. So he stabs him. He cuts his head off. He fights with um, Scythe Rand and another Scythe who's there. He kills both of them. Then he, Rowan, puts on Goddard's robe and his ring in order to escape. And now, mind you, everything up is up in flames because they were using a flamethrower as well to let everything on fire. So Rowan is, he kills everybody and then he leaves them to be burned to death uh, the rest of the way by the fire. And he escapes wearing Goddard's ring and his robe. And that was kind of a happy moment, as bad as that might sound. <laughs> like, hey, somebody died. You're kind of like, oh, thank the Lord. Goddard finally got what's coming to him, and this man is gone. And we do a happy dance. Woohoo! <laughs> Absolutely. And, and like, I think it, oh, it's just, it gets so good from here. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, so Rowan goes back to the mansion and the high blade comes and Rowan totally lies to the high blade about what happens. And so, you know, the high blade believes him because he's a gullible man. I kind of feel, but anyway, he says that Rowan can still be an apprentice, but then the high blade kind of points out that there are inconsistencies in Rowan's story based on what the witnesses say. Well then, so they have this whole conversation and you can tell that the high blade is kind of questioning what actually happens. Well, Esme comes in while they're talking. Rowan says to Xenocrates, he says that he has made arrangements for Esme to go back to her mom now that Goddard's not there anymore. And he suggests that the High Blade take her to her mother. And the High Blade's kind of like, well, why do you want me to do that? And Rowan says, 
because you care about people. And then he winks and he says, <laughs> some more than others. So he's letting Xenocrates know that I he know knows. that she's your daughter. So you take her. So the high blade, he says, okay. And, and then he says that he's going to call off the investigation about what happened to Goddard. And he thanks Rowan and he goes on his way. And I, I just love that, you know, even with all that Rowan has been through, all the turmoil and emotions that he's fought and everything, he just, he still has this awesome sensitive side to him and he helps Esme and the High Blade. And um, so then we finally get to the end where they have their final test to see if they're going to pass this final, this and this killed me. So they don't know what's going to happen on this final test and Scythe Curry doesn't tell Citro what's going to happen. Citro walks into a room and it's very dark. There are other Scythe in there and she's told that she has to, she has to do what they tell her to or she's not going to pass the test. And what happens is they pull the lights up and she sees her brother, the little mm -hmm. brother Ben sitting there. And they say that she has to glean him, but she has a choice. She can glean him or she cannot glean him, but she doesn't have to kill him. I shouldn't have said glean. She just has to render him deadish, and then he'll go and be revived. And they say, if you can do this, you have the strength to be a scythe. And so Citra really struggles with this and who wouldn't, you don't want to, you know, hurt your sibling, but she is so sweet how she does it though. She goes over to her brother and she explains what's going to happen and she just, you know, and he asks if it's going to hurt and she says, yeah, it will for a little bit. And then, you know, she tells him to close his eyes and tell her a story. So he starts telling her a story and then she stabs him while she, he's telling her a story and she's all upset, but she did it. And then, you know, but he'll be okay because he's going to be taken to the revival center and he'll be fine. And then she comes out and she asks Scythe Curry about Rowan. And Scythe Curry says, Rowan killed whoever it was before he was even given all the instructions. It was his mother, I think. And yes, um, that's right. again, going back to his, you know, how his connection with his parents and how they kind of didn't really want him. They had a big, crazy, chaotic family because the grandmother was the same age as the, oh the mother and all those crazy things. Well, when they bring in his mother, after everything that Rowan's gone through, he doesn't even think twice about rendering her deadish. And to Curry, it looks really heartless. Of course, it looks really heartless. And, you know, a part of Rowan has been shut down because he's been coping with all the horrors that have been inflicted on him throughout the story to this point. Exactly. After their test is done, they go back in and they are told that Citra is the one who wins, essentially, and that she is going to be a scythe. And then she's told that she has to glean Rowan. Citra chooses the name Scythe Anastasia for her name. And yes, she picks the name Anastasia from the Romanov, the Russian Romanov family. And I love that because I love that story, but that's a whole other thing. Um, <laughs> so what happens is, and this is ingenious, I absolutely love Citra and her planning and how she did this. So they bring out a like tray full of different blades and they tell her that she can choose one to glean Rowan with. So the first thing that she does though, before she picks up a blade and then she says to Rowan, this is for breaking my neck. 
and she punches him with the hand that has the ring on it because her ring is in place on her finger at this point. And she punches him with that one and it cuts his face. So his blood gets on the ring. Well, then she takes the blade and she's about to kill him. And a, one of the scythes stands up and yells, stop, stop, he has immunity. You can't do that. Because what happens is their rings flash and they like change and show red when somebody has immunity so they know that they can't clean them. And the scythe rings were all doing that. And so because Rowan's blood gets on Citra's ring, that gives him immunity so she doesn't have to glean him. And it's, it's fabulous. It's this great moment. And the high blade completely knows what it is that she did. He says, you have blatantly violated a system edict. She says, I have not your excellency. I was fully prepared to glean him. It was your own parliamentium who stopped me. I never, it never occurred to me that hitting Rowan would grant him immunity. <laughs> and then he looks at her and he says, sly and artful with just enough plausible deniability. You'll do very well among us, Scythe Anastasia. <laughs> so I love it. He realizes, you know, we realize here exactly how cunning Citra is and it's fantastic. So, and then and then he escapes, and then yep. in the chaos that happens immediately kind of after this, uh, you know, he gets immunity, what do we do with him? She's able to kind of orchestrate it so that he's able to escape. Yep. She tells him, she like kind of whispers to him, hey, there's a car waiting for you outside. All you have to do is go and get it. And he tells her he loves her. And then she tells him the same thing. It says, um, he says, I love oh. you, he said. Same here, she responded now get lost and I just love that again it's like that whole let's get it over with get it out of the way well here at the end of the story we have their proclamation of love for each other but like there are more important things you got to get out of here now yeah you have to escape so they say that and then he grabs one of the knives off of the tray and makes a run for it you know kind of defending himself on the way and then he goes out he gets in the car that's waiting for him and Cy Faraday is in the car and Rowan goes, how are you not dead? <laughs> and Scythe Faraday says, I can ask you the same question, but time is of the essence. Now close the door. So then they do, and they speed off, and that is the end of the book. And I just absolutely love it. This is just such a fantastic book, and that is a really good setup for Thunderhead, which is going to be the next episode, and I cannot wait to get into that. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for being here with me today. So, Leah, do you have someone that, you know, if you could be honorable Scythe so-and-so, do you have an answer? Who would you pick, like Scythe Anastasia? That is a really hard question. Oh, man. See, and because I, I think the women pick women and the men pick, like, if I could pick whoever I wanted to, though, irregardless of gender, I think I would actually pick Lincoln, like I think I would be Scythe Lincoln because to me, Abraham Lincoln was a wonderful president and the way that he handled the Civil War and abolishing slavery, like I've just always admired him for that. So too. how about you? I, um, I've put a lot of thought into this answer because <laughs> I've obviously been just immersed in the Scythedom and the, these books, Ark of a Scythe series. Um, I would pick uh, Honorable Scythe Mar Mary Shelley. Um, the oh. author of Frankenstein because she was like 17 years old when she did her first draft of Frankenstein. Um, she wrote it with a bunch of crazy writer friends like Lord Byron, <laughs> invented a genre. It's all about morality and death and ethics. And I think it just would be very thematic for this world. And so <laughs> I'm 
I'm on a big Mary Shelley kick right now. And I was just like, yeah, that'd be awesome. Honorable Scythe Shelley would be my, that would be my patron historic. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks again for joining us. And I would just like to encourage everybody tune in again next episode where we will be continuing the series and talking about Thunderhead. Be sure to go on Instagram and Facebook and follow YA Book Chat there. And if you could also go ahead and leave a positive review, that would be fantastic. And be sure to hit the follow button and share about YA Book Chat with everyone you know. So thanks a lot, everybody, and we will chat again soon. Today's episode featured the book Scythe by Neil Shusterman. YA Book Chat was created, edited, and produced by me, Leah Stuhler. 